0: Snap. It's the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact on a mission to help you maximize your marketing automation and CRM, CheshireImpact.com. Bam. And today's guest. Oh man, what I'm super excited. I've got a little bit of that marketing starstruckness, and also uh, so many things to talk about. Who is this guest? Well, it, hypothetical introduction story. Our guest. Have you ever been doing your job and you look around, and you see things that are crazy, and ho- sometimes hilarious or just ironically wrong, and you thought, huh, you know, let me let me just draw a cartoon about this, and 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 you keep doing it, you keep drawing it. And you know, marketing can get weird business too. And so these things are all around us. But my guest today did that. And he was seeing these things, making these drawings. And years later, this has turned into a whole career, a whole business with a consulting group, with a book that's coming out we're going to talk about, and even keynote stages around the world. He is a marketing comedian. He is a visual storyteller a keynote speaker, the founder and the CEO of Marketunist, content marketing with a sense of humor, Tom Fishburne. Welcome, sir.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. It's great.
0: Oh, great man, it's so so great to see you here. And, and you know, for everyone else out there, I, a, half the people here have seen, seen your work or, or more, you know, cartoons, but cartoons that that get at reality. And there's always some truth to reality, especially to humor. And you just sort of – you know pull these out of nowhere so uh, you know welcome I'm excited to have you here
1: thank you so much it's really great to
0: be on so the theme today we were talking about you know that roadmap for marketing a maturity model to help people maximize marketing automation don't just go blast some email. Don't do that, that that common mistake that a lot of people use. Just think technology is gonna solve it for you. But know your buyer, get to know them, build some systems so you can measure and report what's working, what's not working, getting into content marketing, being authentic. And really right now we're we're in two different parts. We're the theme of content marketing and getting into the idea of social and authentic communication. So that's why you're here. You know, here to school us, probably make us laugh and and I wanted to start out, are there myths? I mean, if you're making cartoons all the time, you've got to be a pretty positive guy, but are there any myths out there, bogus marketing strategies that you're seeing that you just want to shut down, um, punch it in the face?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think there, I think there are a lot. I think marketing, marketing is an ongoing education for all of us. I think we're always learning every day on the job. And there are so many things that we hear out there, conventional wisdom that we're brought up, sort of understanding. And so I think we always have to kind of question those one thing that immediately comes to mind, and I hear this all the time, particularly with content marketing, is something I like to describe as the uh, as the flock of seagulls approach. The idea that you're going to create kind of one thing as a one hit wonder, and that's gonna that's gonna create some you know magic pixie dust in your marketing plan. And what I found is that what what is far more important than the one hit wonder approach is committing to some sort of continuity over time, some sort of right. ongoing connection with the audience that you're reaching over time. And if you invest in that relationship, that's far more important than any sort of one piece of creative or one piece of content that you could create. Um, our, the, long, the client that we've been working with the longest has been publishing a cartoon every week for over eight years now, and that's a huge, you know, length of continuity. But And over time, the yes. value of that has just continued to grow. And yes, wow. a few of those along the way have, have, you know, quote unquote, gone viral and have reached sure. huge audiences. But the bigger value over time is that ongoing connection where the audience is sort of tuning into the next installment. And I think there's room for more marketers to think about that continuity mindset more than a virality mindset so that's one thing i try to educate audience clients you know that, that we work with is not to assume like the first thing you put out there you know you're you're one and done but you really have to sort of commit to some sort of cadence and frequency over time
0: yeah it's almost like that gym metaphor you know you could get a great workout in today or you could go run a marathon we just had the boston marathon in like snow conditions uh yeah. <laughs> two days ago um yeah, but instead of instead of doing that it you know and injuring yourself essentially uh, and trying to go viral and maybe it does but more than likely it doesn't it's that uh, that commitment to consistency you know it going every day or going every other but having some sort of weekly tempo that people can rely on that consistency of message and uh,
1: okay, I see so many businesses that you see this flurry of activity around some sort of a launch of a campaign and then you see uh, it slowly off and then next thing you know you know, it's you know last updated months ago or years ago. It just you people, I, I think, it get frustrated because they set these these unrealistic expectations right out of the gates. And I think it's that ongoing that ongoing frequency that that I think is is I don't know, a useful mentality for marketers of any stripe. It's something that's inherently embedded in cartoons. Cartoons is inherently a serial media medium. medium yeah. as, you know, Peanuts was published every day for fifty years. You know that kind of mm. long term frequency. I think too often marketers, you know, have a campaign by campaign or a quarter by quarter or, you know, a one shot mentality, but that ongoing connection with an audience over time, I think is really, really useful.
0: You know, that's so true. And I even think about, you know, marketing automation tools and you can build drip campaigns that message people. And I always know that when I, when I look at a, the name, even just the name of a drip campaign and I see it say July, 2018, then I know something's wrong because you're, you're not planning to be reaching to people on a regular basis. You're planning for July to be a regular basis, and that's that's not it. You know, that's you know, and this these sort of spurts. It's almost like when I was learning to drive my my Wrangler. You know, my dad said, "Here, you know, we we helped you buy a car, but." You can't have it till you can know how to drive it. (laughs) I'm starting and stopping. I'm starting and stopping. That's not a comfortable ride for anyone. No one wants to ride with you when you're driving like that. But that's how our marketing campaigns are if we're not committing to some sort of consistent message. And you can have things you want to highlight, but not making your whole, you know, being a gym trainer once a month, you know?
1: Yes, exactly. I think also it's about, ultimately, it's about the relationship that you have with the audience that you're connecting with. Relationship and you have to, in order to be something that they'd want to hear from with some frequency, you need to be providing something of value. And it, having that continuity mindset, I think, sort of changes how you think about the relationship with your audience, ultimately giving them something so useful that they would miss it if it wasn't there. You know, and that's, and that's, uh, I think that's that's kind of raises the bar in my mind a little bit on, on what we put out there. You know, would it be something that they would complain about if it, if it wasn't there?
0: Right. I like that. Ultimately something they would miss if it wasn't there. They would, yeah. yeah. That, that, you know, giving you, giving them so much value. It's not just helpful, but they're like, where's the USA today? Or where's that thing that I always looked for? Uh, For me it's always that last page on that, on that USA today in a hotel lobby where it said, you know, this little weird thing happened in Wisconsin and this thing happened in New Hampshire and, you know, little tiny, curious little news snippets from, from each state. I always just looked forward to that. And I I would have the same idea, you know, if I, wait, where is it, you know, or my wife and I would fill out a crossword every Sunday at brunch, you know? And, and if we can't find that, 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 that magazine that that's always, you know, in the little stand, you know, last, last weekend there was one, so we had to share that was a little challenging sharing a crossword it was not too bad but yeah yeah something you consistently look for uh and, ne- and to your point now you have a relationship i think we we kind of give air quotes to relationship and then yeah. treat it as if it was you know one of those like paid relationships it's like no 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 th- th- to be consistent you know we're not going to you know talk with a significant other once a month you know oh let's have a quarterly meeting as you know in a relationship here and i i won't talk to you for 3 months
1: <laughs> let's not right, have right,
0: communication right. you know
1: I think it also it, it, it reflects the fact, I think, that that connecting with an audience is a bit of a privilege. And I think sometimes marketers get into yeah. the mindset that it's just about cranking up the marketing automation machine and letting it fly, and that it's sort of one directional. But ultimately, having an audience that wants to hear from you with that kind of a frequency, there's a privilege in that. And I think raising the bar on what we put out there is kind of commensurate with that, With that, sort of treating it like a privilege.
0: Well, how do you get there? I mean, that's hard. Yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it is. And I think, well, obviously, I come up with a kind of an unusual background as a cartoonist, but I think that, you know, I've learned from, car- you know, cartoonists ultimately build up audiences, you know, particularly today's cartoonists that can't rely on newspapers and magazines. They're building up audiences, uh, you know, one cartoon at a time, trying to grow an audience and learning from the audience, learning what resonates and trying to build on that. Right. And So it's something that I you know, study with cartoonists that I follow, but it's something that I've had to follow on my own. Uh, you know, in my in my own work, you know, you're trying to build up audiences over time. I mean, my marketoonist, my regular marketing cartoon, was not an overnight success. It started to show traction right away, but ultimately, it was about publishing one cartoon every week for almost the last 16 years. That's led mm-hmm. to this audience over time. And so that that commitment, I think, is is something that I that was just hardwired in me as I built up my own cartoon. And now it's something that I I try to reflect on different different campaigns that that that, that I work on. Um, And so it starts with one another aspect, I think, sometimes with content marketing, uh, oftentimes people sit around a conference table and they they when they think of the audience that they're trying to reach, they often go much broader than they need to be. And I actually think that there's a lot of value in the inside joke, you know, material that's not for everyone, but it's particularly suited for the audience that you're trying to reach. And I often think, uh, you know, it, it starts with a little bit of empathy. Usually the car, usually the humor in cartoons comes from an understanding of some sort of pain point that the audience is feeling and so if you can understand that pain point through empathy by really understanding them particularly if it's a pain point that not everybody would get or understand right then when they see some material reflecting that pain point you know in our in my case creating a cartoon about that pain point they think it's it's for them and they want to share it with other people who are in that world and i think that's a value too far too often I, i i see a lot of content marketing that's just you know broad and untargeted and diluted and one size fits all and it ends up just just basic as clutter that you see you know right. everywhere but nothing really necessarily resonates with you as a specific individual. So I think having, having a lot of empathy for those pain points at the start of the process definitely helps for me. And then as a cartoonist, trying to find, you know, that's really where the humor lies. If you can get people laughing at some sort of, uh, some sort of, uh, you know, pain that they're experiencing, a collective laugh, then you as a brand or a marketer are, are sharing that joke with them and it allows you to be sort of, it deepens that relationship because they know that you understand them.
0: Yeah, you know, the best humor, the best content, really targeted. And it takes some balls. It takes some some guts to go after a, a, a targeted market, you know, a niche. Sometimes we yeah. want to be everything to everyone. And then you end up being not nothing to anyone, to no one, right? <laughs> or, yeah. um, because you're not staking a claim somewhere. Uh, but to your point, inside jokes reveal... A lot. It reveals that you know what what you're talking about, and I think for me that was what was cool about you know your cartoons, at least the mar- marketing tunis ones that I, for, where I first met you, quote met you, it was just seeing those going like this guy gets it, you know. <laughs> You've been in that board meeting where it's stupid or. Like, hey guys, we're gonna do the next la la campaign because it'll, be, right. it'll it'll save our company. And you're like, this is so ridiculous, it's ridiculous, but true. Like, yes. it wouldn't be funny if it wasn't true. And you know, if you hadn't been there, and you know, again, the empathy for people. So yeah, the inside joke approach to content marketing that's a really cool. That's a really cool. I don't approach reminder.
1: Well, I think I think the the interesting the nice thing about having a series is that you don't have to make every every piece relevant to everyone too. I mean the nice thing about having a series approach is you can have inside joke applying to one group and then the next week you're 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 touching on something else. I think sometimes when we have a campaign mentality, we think, here's this one piece that we're going to put out into the world. And we 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 sort of think, oh, is it going to work with this audience and this audience and that audience. Right. But if instead you have sort of a frequency approach you can take a little bit of a take a little bit of an experiment experimentation, you know, and and, and try things that might work for one audience and not another. Um, we just did a series with, with Lenovo Software about a, a campaign they wanted to do around work workplace transformation. And the material in that was not for everybody, but but we found some real inside jokes specifically with companies that are trying to evolve their culture and communicate in different ways and finding some of the humor and the, the transition points along that journey, how tricky it can be. And, you know, again, it's not for everyone. It's the type of right. cartoon series, like I show my parents and they wouldn't get half of the jokes. There. Right. But if you're in that world, it kind of, it kind of related and people would make sense. You know, there was a joke around, you know, a move towards standing desks, for instance, and it was a whole cartoon scene and it showed everyone jumping on little personal trampolines. And saying, you know, you know, apparently, apparently Standing Desk didn't deliver enough of a workplace transformation.
0: So we need to, to go to trampolines, yeah.
1: <laughs> and it's, so it's not for everyone, but they ended up seeing people were really responding to it. And it, um, Lenovo Software set up a, a whole microsite where you could see the cartoons, but then you could actually order the cartoons as uh, physical artifacts that you can put on your desk, like, you know, mouse pads and, and little, little framed prints and that, and that type of thing, coffee mugs, because people, if you're in that world and that is your, your pain point, like having, having a cartoon as a reminder of that pain point and making you laugh about
2: it's something that
1: you want to have in front of you. And so that was a nice sort of kind of a playback on how when you play, when you do the inside joke, well, it's something that people want to actually have around them, not necessarily what it says explicitly about your brand but really what it says about themselves and then your brand in this case lenovo software is part of that whole experience
0: so you help other brands create these consistent cartoons as well so it started with marco and then now it's really expanded to different brands that want to have that regular consistent conversation and kudos to them for having a fun conversation right i think it's too often it's serious business and we're all humans. We all kind of want to have fun at our jobs, I think. You know, unless you're right. counting, maybe you don't. But <laughs> all the accountants are like, "What?" Actually, no accountants are listening to this, so it's fine. We can make fun of them. <laughs>
1: I've done um, a lot of series with accountants. Actually. Have you?
0: Have you really? You
1: want to have humor, and actually, that's another case where there's like some <laughs> pain points in their world. I did something. We did something with Intuit a few years ago oh, around cool. tax season, and all these you know tax accountants all have the same pain points and struggles around tax season. And in that case, we actually made it interactive. We had we created a few cartoons about the life of an accountant around tax season. And then we put out a call for stories for people to tell their horror stories of what (laughs) some of the things that have happened to them and explicitly about, you know, about technology woes, you know, uh, Intuit was trying to talk about the fact that they have a lot in the cloud and so the cloud can help solve some of the data woes of keeping your data locally. So we got all these great stories and like created, you know, created cartoons around actual stories from the audience that they were reaching. So there was somebody whose you know daughter had come in as a toddler and pulled me out, know, what does this button do? And basically turned off the whole uh, oh, no. you know oh you know her PC and, and ended up losing all this work. And so you know that turned into a cartoon it was pretty funny and the audience you know responded well to that because right. it captured real stories. So I think I think um, that, that was the big light bulb moment for me where I could turn kind of my marktoonist journey from a hobby into a career is when I thought this card, the same way that I'm creating a cartoon every week about marketing, brands could use cartoons as a communication medium to connect with their audiences. So for the last eight years, we've been focused on that um, uh, as a kind of a mini studio approach, helping brands yeah. communicate with cartoons. And a lot of it's been through niche audiences, you know, brands trying to connect with niche audiences using inside jokes and pain points as a way to kind of to kind of show that they get them. And to your point about humanizing, like something, um, you know, very often, particularly in Technology B two B marketing, you can get so focused on features and benefits, and you know, right. and, and 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 tech speak that you're, you, you know, you sound like every other brand out there. But if you can totally. humanize what you're talking about through, you know, something that actually gets at what the audience, how the audience actually use your product uses your products, then that's a much better, that's a much more fun place to to be, and, and people respond to that a lot better. It humanizes a brand.
0: Yeah. Now, this is something I know you you talk on too. The the idea of putting you know you humanizing right bringing life to a brand so they're not just that i mean you mentioned some of the brands you mentioned i'm glad they worked with you because with prior to that in my head i'm thinking these guys are boring you know um what could they possibly do but the fact that they're trying things out pushing boundaries and 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 they have the buy-in to be able to say what you're gonna have a you're gonna have a regular cartoon for our target audience that sounds ridiculous you know <laughs> but it's not it it's it, communication people want to receive and there's actually some i'm sure you can even convey strategies and, and value in that in those those drawings and cartoons as well as just showing your audience you know you know them you understand what they're going through and you're here to help with that
1: exactly and it helps that over time you know we have some case studies that can help convince some of the more skeptical people in an organization you know right. that uh, you know, you, some, you hear, you think of cartoons as media and some people would say that sounds risky, it sounds silly, right. sounds childish, doesn't really f- reflect our brand. But um, fortunately now, you know, over the last eight years, we've worked with enough companies to have enough kind of repeatable data. Yeah. You know, it's typically triple the engagement rates of other types of visual media that these companies 100%. are experimenting Yeah, Cartoons are so engaging, you know, it's fun. And so that's something that, you know, even if you're skeptical, you think that, that's, I can, I can buy into that, I can see the value of that. And then I think, you know, yeah, it's been, it's funny, some of the campaigns that have done the best are some of the brands that you think would be the most risk adverse and less willing to do it. And I think that's partly why, is that if you can humanize something that's traditionally been very, you know, very, you know, straight laced and right. uh, kind of represent the human side of your brand, uh, that, that goes a long way.
0: And that and, contrast you know, is what is maybe
1: like right? God, I don't want to see this. Oh, wait, it's, you know, it's a cartoon. I can see, that's funny. It's my life. I can see myself in that.
0: Totally. What what were some of those brands? That, that well, yeah, you know, we, like, we talked about a
1: couple of them already. Okay, so, yeah. You know, Intuit and, and Lenovo Software too. Sure. That that. Uh, I worked for, we worked for uh, five years with a company that uh, (laughs) talk about niche. This is an industry I didn't even know existed. Uh, (laughs) There's a whole industry called e-discovery, which is basically when big companies sue each other and they have to exchange documentation before a lawsuit that's called discovery. And there's this whole shift in the last 20 years where it's all been, it used to be literally U-Haul trucks filled with paper, you know, that one, one, you know, law firm would send another before a lawsuit and then it all went digital. So all these companies had to figure out how to digitize and share all these digital records. And lawyers are not the most tech savvy people in the universe. So that created a lot of tension as they have to figure out, you know, lawyers who are used to scribbling on yellow tablets, you know, yellow legal tabs, tablets, having to like think about, you know, optical character recognition and, you know, and, and, you know, you know, all, all sorts of very detailed metadata oriented questions. So there's a lot of humor in that, but it's very niche. Because not everybody would get humor for lawyers trying to do e-discovery. And it's also, you think about lawyers, you know, if you think about lawsuits, it's not the funniest area to play with. But by creating a cartoon series here, it really brought a lot of the stuff to life. And the cartoons, um, you know, brought humor to a space that didn't have a lot of it. Suddenly, the cartoons were being used in uh, law schools across the country and uh, certification courses for law firms. And it was all sponsored by a company specializing in e-discovery, but suddenly it allowed them, by bringing a sense of humor to it, uh, rather than just talking about how quickly they can, you know, how much data they can hold or trans- transfer, it, op- it opened up this whole, you know, communication. And I ended up, I got invited to, uh, th- there's a big conference around this called Legal Tech.
2: Okay. New- and it
1: was in New York that year. And they not only ran one of the cartoons as a billboard ad in Times Square. Which
2: oh, no know way. Know,
1: so many lawyers at that one point in time focused on e discovery in yeah. Times Square, but they they flew me out and had me uh, basically signing cartoons and calendars and things at a booth. <laughs> All of these people showed up who knew the cartoon and like yeah. were connecting with it. And you think, gosh, would there ever really be humor in something like e discovery? You know, or that you know this kind of niche yeah. area what this what this this campaign taught me is that, yes, for people who work in that space, if you can bring humor to their world and show that you get them, they're totally receptive to them to it, and they're totally you know happy with having you know a sense of humor brought to something that that, that is at the end of the day kind of serious you're going in front of judges, but it it partly works because so much of that job is so serious
0: you, you know right I, in that contrast between serious and and, you know, even me just even just me saying like, oh, accountants and they're boring. And I, I know a few and I like them, but I'd still make fun of them. But uh, but yeah, everyone's got their their humor and, and their their niche area that they love hearing about. One of my other uh, favorite cartoons is um, Terminal Lance. It's just all about the Marine Corps, all about yeah. But that low level where you're just that guy sweeping or cleaning or on some stupid, you know, assignment. And you're, and, and just like. Just like how, you know, your cartoon just nails marketing at some of the ridiculous conversations that happen in boardrooms and and, and brainstorm sessions, you know, this other one did for uh, for the Marine Corps. But, you know, and that might be a serious thing, but there's always humor. And and I guess yeah, you know, even to that point, even in like combat and things like that, there was always some element of you gotta you gotta escape it all, you know. You gotta escape really? tax season if you're an accountant, or if you're you know an attorney doing these you know really serious gigantic lawsuits. It's nothing to nothing to laugh about, but you know you, you gotta somehow laugh about what you do. Uh, and that actually reminded me, uh, there's this uh, attorney who's actually really popular right now, Bob Goff. He talks a lot about love, and he's got books out. He's just a really super guy, but he's a trial attorney and he's also like a humanitarian, but he, he's yeah. a story that he wears a Mickey mouse watch to court and, <laughs> and he does. And you know, I think he mentioned that at one point there, like three or four days in, he saw a juror see his watch and like and smile. And he's like, aha, I got it. <laughs> I, got <this laughs> I got this case. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think there's, I think there's room for that. I think sometimes we, uh, I don't know, we, we, you know, get into a place of thinking that business has to be serious, and certain types of communication has to be serious. And I think uh, what I've learned is, you know, cartoons often allow us to say things that are hard to say any other way. I don't think it just has to be cartoons, but I think that that's, you know, that's one classic medium that you get a little, you get away with a little bit of that. And to your point about cartoons about combat, I mean, cartoons can cover all sorts of material, they basically, and and, and and by having empathy, and ultimately, I think um, the best cartoons have the audience that they're trying to reach. Somehow exhibited it as a hero in the cartoon. Somehow, from their point of view, showing their struggle and what they're going through. And so, when you make the audience the hero, you know there's embedded empathy in that. And then, you know, you're share you're sharing an experience with them. And that's even though it may be a one-directional medium, you're creating something and putting it out to an audience. In some ways, it feels two-directional because the audience has to kind of look at the cartoon and see themselves in it, and it says something about about them. And that's that's a I think that's a in my mind, a useful metaphor really for any type of content marketing or any type of marketing is to think about your audience as the hero for what you're creating and how, and how what you're creating can be something that's a shared experience between you and the audience that you're reaching.
0: I like that. The audience is the hero, hero of the story, the hero yeah. of the cartoon, the drawing, the, the, the illustration, the case study, whatever it is, they're the hero.
1: Right, Exactly
0: instead of the butt of the joke or the victim who downloaded this white paper that is a bunch of clickbait, you know, it's actually there to help them. They're the hero. You're treating them like it. You're putting them front and center.
1: Exactly. And I think there's a lot. Yeah. I I often, I really think about like what the butt of the joke is going to be because I, you know, I think that they're, they're definitely, you know, in the field of cartooning, there's definitely like the, the, the the flavor of cartooning that's very kind of cynical and takedown and using a poison pen. And I feel like that, that that approach, in my experience, has not worked well with marketing to be you know, that sort of cynical. Ultimately, you ultimately I try to poke fun at things, but ultimately I'm not looking I'm not creating a, cart, a cartoon, putting myself on a pedestal above the audience. And I think, uh-huh. you know, it's ultimately showing, you know, we're going through some sort of struggle. There's some sort of pain point. But ultimately, it's uh, it's about, you know, finding a bit of a bit of humor in the pain point without without the poison pen.
0: Tell me about Poison Pen because I, I definitely, I, I've seen, I, the good kind is where you're in it with them. You know, we're, yeah. we're, we're all in this together. Or this, this may be crazy, but hey, we're all in this boardroom together. You know, and even if I couldn't have joined you there, here's this drawing to show. I, I was there in spirit. But what's the yeah. Poison Pen aspect? How do we people take that too far they, where they go off, off track?
1: I think that it's, it's when there's sort of a takedown, a takedown element, like you're, 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 uh, uh, you're, you're sort of, uh, when it becomes sort of almost character assassination of a stereotype, for instance. Like I think finding humor, there, there's a line there, because I think, you know, I obviously in a lot of my cartoons about marketing, I make fun of things that marketers yeah. say, and I'm one of them. Yeah. But it's, it's but it but going after... Uh, yeah, um, you know, let's you know, least you know political cartoons and as an example I how of I treat certain thing. world leaders. Every single, uh, you know, that that I think is cartoon. you know, it's, there's a vein of that that's really really funny and, and resonant. But in the world of marketing, that sort of negative tinge can can shut people off. I think also, the line I try to think of is that the cartoons in the world of you know humor in general in the world of marketing, you're more of a court jester than you are sort of uh, Lenny Bruce. It's sort of like you're laughing at at things collectively. But you're not uh, you're you're not you're not trying to, to to take down or belittle. Maybe you know maybe for some brands that takedown approach you know can work. But I think I think for most most brands that that I work with, particularly in B two B marketing, it's more about you know good natured sense of humor around yeah. pain points.
0: Have you that, seen that, people that's do that's wrong? Obviously, political cartoons just come to mind. It's like you're gonna make somebody's eyes roll. But in like a, in a commercial sense, have you have you seen any sort of commercials or any sort of where they're doing it incorrect? Because I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, political obviously makes sense, but yeah. commercial side, taking down the competitor, maybe I don't know. Just
1: yeah, they can't. I mean, I think I, I think the challenger brands can be very powerful, and I've yeah. worked in challenger brands in my marketing career. Oh yeah, yeah. Just an example. So I, for for years, I worked for this a company called Method. They make uh, uh, cleaning products, hand soaps, and that type of thing. Huh. It's a it's a great brand. It was a challenger brand. It was kind of taking on. Procter & Gamble and Unilever and companies like that. And it was a challenger brand. So inherently, uh, it was it was provoking, you know, the 800-pound gorilla, you know. And there was a lot of humor <laughs> in that. But occasionally, uh, there was sort of a spectrum of lighthearted to dark. And communication, uh, you know, really worked well. Like often, you know, we, we would just sort of make fun of, of these bigger companies that often were a little bit stiff. You know, yeah. we, we received a cease and desist letter for having a... Uh, an image of a of a daisy in one of its cleaning bottles, and it's something that Method had used from day one, early in its brand, and then later on, a brand launched a you know environmental cleaning brand product, and they used that image of a daisy in a bottle. And even though they came after Method, they decided to trademark it and sue Method for having used it. Jeez. And so we, we played with humor, and we kind of made fun of the whole lawsuit. And eventually, you know, it turned into a great marketing coup because we were just the jester; we were joking about it. Yeah contrast that with another piece of creative that came out for method where it was trying to, trying to, to, to a little bit find humor about some of the, the chemicals that can be toxic in other cleaning products. And it, it basically, it had a, this is really dark, but it had, yeah. uh, it had uh, uh, one of those powdered cleaning products, like a, like, 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 uh, like Comet, basically. Sure. And it lined, it had them lined up about uh, on a, on a, on a countertop, like, like cocaine lines. It says something like, you wouldn't put this up your nose, but if you're cleaning with it, that's basically what's happening.
2: And uh, it's an example
1: of trying to be funny, but it ended up being so dark, like, you know, that it, it just backfired. It's only and so that, that it's was, that, that's an example of, of where, you know, at its best, Method used humor as a court jester, but sometimes it went too dark and completely turned <laughs> people off. And, that you know, I, I fortunately early in my marketing career came a, you know, experienced that. And it shaped a little bit of how I think about humor going forward. That there's a there's a line, particularly if you're if you're working in comedy in corporate environments, where you uh, you know you, you want to be really thoughtful about the the butt of the joke, what you're making fun of, and ultimately the tone that you have.
0: Man, <laughs> I mean that stuff you might be able to pull off on Comedy Central because it's dark. Yeah, I, I think of like Anthony Jesselneck. I don't know if you've heard of any of his things, but oh. everything he says is dark. He he basically his His approach is, I'm a psychopath, and so all of his jokes are just like cringeworthy. And (laughs) you're like, I can't believe you said that. And that's a line that he can cross, but even he gets in trouble. But still, if you're a brand. Let's not go for, let's not go for the Jesselmeck style here.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. And sometimes that's one of the barriers we're coming across because people think of cartoons and they immediately think, um, they think of examples like that, that could be really, you know, takedownish. but it doesn't have to be, you know, it's a very broad and versatile medium. There's a lot of experimentation happening in all corners. And I don't think there should be any restriction, you know, in the broader sense, but when it comes right. to marketing and branding, you know, you it's ultimately thinking about how that can play within the brand that you represent
0: you know still though your dark example is kind of, it's so it's so it's so cringeworthy <laughs> L- lines of white powder oh my gosh <laughs> uh. yeah. it,
1: well still talked about it i mean you know it's it, it definitely you know it, it was um it definitely got people talking let's say but i don't necessarily think the brand it doesn't did, necessarily reflect the jovial good natured aspect right
0: of right if you get dark yeah now you're now you're throwing you're throwing rocks you know you're you're getting aggressive. I can see it. the challenger brands might might be doing that, but they got to do it in a smart way. So they're yeah. they're approaching it where they're getting they're getting kudos for attacking, poking the bear, right? But right. you're not stabbing the bear. You're just poking it. You know,
1: exactly. That's that's the line. And I think it's one of the things I think about. I mean having having worked as a marketer, yeah, happened to draw cartoons and then starting a business to kind of put the two together. I use my marketing, you know, experience a lot when I'm working with companies because, like, one one campaign, one cartoon approach with one client won't work with another one. You have to really understand like who the brand, what the brand is, and what they represent, and it's there's there's a different feel, you know. And 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 I there's some things I've learned that have worked in and and haven't that I try to apply, but ultimately I try to really understand where the brand is and like what the type of comedy. It might work for them as opposed to another brand.
0: Right, right. And I, I actually want to get into some of your methods of discovery. But it might actually be great to how, let's just. How did this start? You were you were being a marketer at a big you know, big brands and and what you're just starting to. I mean, you always loved sketching, and how did this materialize?
1: Yeah, in a way, it started when I was a kid. I used to doodle. I, I used to doodle all the time. I loved cartoons. I used to read, you know, read all the cartoons as a yeah. kid. Just laying down on a Sunday morning with the Sunday paper and silly putty and kind of moving the cartoons over and yeah. like changing the bug around. And so I, I loved cartoons at you know at a very young age and I used to dream about being a cartoonist. And then you know you get older and you think, well, that's not realistic. And so I kind of put it to the side and worked in business um, and ultimately went to business school. And then when I was in business school. You know, suddenly there was a student newspaper and I thought, <laughs> wow, it'd be fun to do a cartoon for the student paper. So I started yeah. doing initially for that, just a cartoon for, about student life. And, for, you know, two, my two years at Harvard Business School, I, I drew a weekly cartoon about student life. And I really loved it. I, I got hooked right away. Partly, you know, for the same things we've been talking about it. you, There are a lot of inside jokes in an environment like that. We had sure. 1,800 students. A lot of inside jokes, and you could capture those with cartoons, and people really responded to them. And there was that frequency of every week there was a new cartoon in the paper, and people would come back to me. And suddenly professors were asking me to create cartoons for them as teaching aids, and uh, yeah. I just had a ton of fun with it. And then when I graduated, I didn't have the paper anymore, um, and I went to go work at General Mills. Uh, and then suddenly I found myself at general mills with a similar dynamic of inside jokes around me, like this world of marketing and the way marketers sort of worked. I thought, yeah. gosh, this would be really fun to capture in a cartoon. Um, and instead of a student paper, I just set up a simple website, had a way for people to sign up to get on my mailing list and then send it out to the 35, you know, other marketers who are part of my class at general mills. Right. And the next thing you knew, it started to grow. People started to sign up from. All over different companies, different countries, and it just took on a momentum of its own. And so that sort of followed my marketing career from Method to, I'm sorry, from General Mills to Nestle, and then ultimately to uh, Method. And uh, I was, you know, working as a marketer by day and at nights and weekends, I tried to draw cartoons about the stuff I was seeing. And then I started, uh, over time, companies started to contact me and asking if I could create cartoons for them. To use as content marketing and i would say well actually this is just a hobby you know i have a day job i have a busy day job but they uh they were some of the products were really interesting and i the asian wall street journal contacted me and i created a cartoon book for them that was really fun and then more and more brands started to ask if i could create things and I, i started doing it on the side and initially thinking it would just be a little sideline but it started to get enough momentum eventually i got to a point where i thought wow, there's really is an opportunity to think about cartoons as a medium for marketing communication. And yeah. given my background, I'm in a pretty interesting place to experiment with that. And so eight years ago, my wife and I started this full time as a little marketing studio, you know, focused on content marketing. And um, and over time, I've added a few other cartoonists to the teams. Now, now that there are a few of us who are working on every, every project, and it feels a, bit, a little bit like a TV writer's room where we're. Oh, around yeah. ideas. And yeah. And I I love it. It's been a great way for me to combine the marketing side of my life with the cartooning side of my life. And uh and you know, ultimately achieve the childhood dream I had when I was sitting on the floor as a 10-year-old reading the Sunday paper.
0: Yeah, it, you are know, hearing hearing that story, it's so interesting because it sounds like you're you would get started with a cartoon at a particular area you're at and and you're like, ah, oh, there's something here. People are even telling you something here, but there's almost like that voice in our heads or, or it could be an adult or someone saying, you got to grow up and, and go, you know, be one of these people over here in this company or whatnot. And you're like, okay, all right. And you go do that. You're like, but I think I want to draw about this too. You know, I, I want to bring my own passion back into this. So it's almost like you kept doing it. Finally, it's like, all right. I'm a, let's do this. So, how did you have a couple clients? Had you done a couple projects on the side when you're like, okay, we could make a go at this, or was it just like,
1: oh, it took it took a long time to think I could really make a go at it? Like, that's yeah. not, you know, we at the time we had young kids. Yeah. Um, we were uh, actually. We I was living in. We lived in London for three years with Method, and so I wasn't even in my. You know, I was in a different country. Yeah. And but all this was taking off, and I was really, you know, I was really thinking there's something here, but it was scary to think about actually cutting the cord, you know, leaving the salary behind and actually oh, yeah. making it. And there was an entrepreneur um, who I talked to around that time named David Hyatt, who uh, lives in Wales. He started a denim a, a denim company, a jeans company. And um, he had this analogy he said was useful for him whenever he was thinking about starting a new business. And he described it as the, as the V1 marker. And he mm-hmm. said that when you're aircraft about to take off and you're running down the, the runway, there's this point called V1 speed where the plane takes off. It's the point of no return, where the plane either takes off or it crashes. And he right. said, helpful for him is to look down the runway and think, what would have to be true in the future for me to jump and start this? Yeah. And uh, what those criteria would be. And then when you hit those criteria, then the decision's kind of been taken away from you. It's time to just <laughs> jump. Yeah. And so he so I thought about that, like, what is my B1 marker? And I eventually came to you know, a few things. I wanted to have um, moonlighting revenue at half my salary. So okay. enough clients equal to half my salary. I wanted to have a business plan to get to the other half within a yep. year. So I gave myself a year to get back to where I was from a salary perspective. Um, I wanted to have my wife's support. And I wanted to have um, a home equity line of credit <laughs> so sure. I could have a little bit of a safety net. Yeah. And so I was cruising down the runway. And uh, when all those things came to be true, it was just time to jump. And that took some of the fear out of it. Not all the fear. Like, it was still terrifying, particularly yeah. after sure. I did it. And I, and I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> and all my mentors are saying, you're leaving this great marketing career to pursue a cartooning career? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, it's been eight years and it's been, it's far, you know, surpassed any of my expectations. I've learned so much and I learned that it doesn't have to be one or the other. In this case, it was an ex- a continuation of this journey, right. not, uh, you know, well it may seem on the face of it going from marketing to cartooning. Ultimately, you know, I'm doing marketing every day. It's really basically starting a marketing agency that just happens to work in cartoons, but it was certainly scary to make the jump. And I've talked with a lot of, a lot of other people, you know, a lot of people since a lot of of would be entrepreneurs who are thinking about making similar leaps. And uh, I think it's a common experience for anyone starting something, you know, leaving, leaving the safety net, you know, the known to go out into something that's unknown. It's really terrifying. And, uh, the V1 marker helped me, uh, uh, you know, psychologically get there, but it also made sure that my ducks were in a row. Like I didn't just walk in the office with a dramatic "I'm quitting this place" kind of right. moment. <laughs> but I really wanted to have, you know, have something I was I was jumping toward, not just not just leaving something. And yeah. it helped. I was working at the time. Method, one of the founders, used to always tell me, um, "I never want you to leave Method to join another company. I want you to leave Method to start another company." So yeah. that was always encouraging.
0: That's a cool, oh, that's, yeah, that is encouraging. Yeah. And, and I like the point about having something to jump for. Uh, so you're not just jumping. because uh, yeah. that, that would be about kind of irresponsible, but even having some sort of image. And I mean, if you have an image and a plan, that's even better. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. I don't of course, the plan me. gets thrown out of the window right after you it jump does. too. Uh,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I think the <laughs> act of being to it is what matters. Suddenly all these doors opened up that I never even knew would exist. You know, right. public speaking for instance. I never expected to get paid for that. You know, I, I but but once I started yeah. the business and were asking me, Hey, could you give a talk using cartoons on this topic? And I said yes, and suddenly, you know, fast forward to now it's 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 about a third of the revenue is paid really? keynotes and I love it. It's one of my things I love the most is getting on stage and speaking about marketing using cartoons. But I didn't I didn't even know that it was a possibility when I made that leap. And so I think the act of committing to taking the jump suddenly Suddenly when I was definitely doing this and it wasn't just a sideline or a hobby, um, you know, people started to contact me asking me to collaborate on interesting projects, all these things I couldn't have expected. You know, I got a call last last year for, you know, a a marketing cartoon to help a particular event and the marketing cartoon ended up winning a Guinness Book of World Records uh, entry. (laughs) the most contributions to a color by number. We broke up the cartoon into little teeny color by number things. And over the course of three days, you know, hundreds of people basically colored in this cartoon that I drew. No and then, the, you know, Guinness World Records gave the award out. It's like if you had told a 10-year-old version of myself, you know, someday <laughs> I don't only have a job as a cartoonist, but also win a Guinness World Record in relation to it, I would have thought you were, you were crazy. But uh, that's the kind of stuff I, I found that happens when you commit to something you know, making yeah. it kind of a jump, all these doors open and windows open that you didn't
0: know were there. Yeah. Commit to something that you actually care about or are passionate about. And, and you got a Guinness record without having to eat like 300 oysters or, you know, or, or learn how to juggle or anything crazy. Like you breathe, you know, hold your breath for nine minutes or something. You, it's something you're passionate about and it just flowed through that. You know, right. one of the things I was thinking about when you mentioned that, that committing to that jump, uh, by the way, I, I love that airplane metaphor because there's that certain point and it's like. Beyond this, we gotta we gotta take off and try to turn around and fly and land because we're there's no more runway after this so we gotta go. Um, I, I mean, I used to do a lot of ropes courses and things like that, and they have a particular one where you climb up a telephone pole. Now, obviously, you're you're roped in, uh, but this is like a, one of those team building things, and you, you climb up a telephone pole at the t- and you actually stand on the top of it, which is more scary than probably anything else because <laughs> yeah. you have to somehow get up on your feet and not fall over and then stand up on that pole. But once you're standing up, you're like, okay, at least I'm up. But like, what, what next? And there's a trapeze bar in front of you and it ah. looked stupid far. Like it looked yeah. it, from the ground. It looks far from up there. It looks far. You're like, this is ridiculous. And you try not to, you know, self, self tell yourself that you're going to miss it automatically. Be like, this is, I don't know how I can make this right. but because it's there and i remember just you know you you have to just okay you're like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna give this a shot and you jump and when you actually grab onto that bar you it's pretty friggin' exciting and you're like yeah. I, I never thought i'd make this but you had to have something to jump to otherwise you know it it's a lot much harder to well i mean just jump off this pole that sounds ridiculous you know, right. how, how am i jump to that thing you know
1: exactly and i could have been idling on the edge of the cliff for years i was sure. really you know i was i was already making money you know, with cartoons as marketing for several years before I made the jump. It was just moonlighting and I thought there's no way this can actually be a bigger thing. But it was only when I committed to it that suddenly it was like, oh wow, there are all these other projects that have opened up. And suddenly, you know, there you know, there are not many people who do this type of work. And it's I feel fortunate that I've had I've had this last, you know, but it was not like a guidance counselor ever said this is even a possibility. And I think (laughs) a lot of times you jump and and you sort of have to I don't know, there there is that metaphor of, of of taking off of, of, of jumping and, and flapping your wings. But th- I think the other part of that is you have to kind of keep building your wings as you're falling too. Yeah. Like you, you, there, there, there's a leap of faith because you're, it's not guaranteed, um, right. you know, but ultimately you have to take that committed jump and then be resourceful and figure out how to continue flapping.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. You no, know, I love the flapping. I mean, flapping metaphors, you know, little, I, I don't like skydiving, so I'll use like a skydiving metaphor. But <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah.
0: Absolutely, got to got to pack that parachute ahead of time. Um, so, what what's really cool about this is that it, I don't I don't think it's just just the artistic talent. I don't think it's just the drawing because I mean, obviously, there's there's drawings all over the place. But what I think you combine is that observation, um, and maybe that sense of empathy, and the illustrational side. By the way, and it, for people listening. The backdrop uh, on video is a gigantic wall-sized one of your one of your cartoons, and it's it's really a it's a clean style. It's 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 like superb and very well drawn. But what's important is that it's also ties into your set, like the inside jokes. So I think that's really what we're we're paying to see, and things like the keynotes. And I, I by the way, I've seen some of your keynotes, and 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 it's it's funny it it's like well how do you how do you do a keynote with with when you your main medium is like a, a drawing but you pulled it off and i think one of them you actually had a contest to see who if people could name a particular like a like bring a subtitle or you know a, a caption to a particular illustration and they got the ah. whole audience just laughing and involved and they were then was that my favorite no that was my favorite and they could it was like <laughs> Inside joke after inside joke. So yeah, so, so, I wonder, you know, how, how do you extract those inside jokes? Is, is it as simple as just you're polling the audience or when it comes to working with a client? And I think we can all use this working with our own content. You know, maybe we're not drawing it, but we're writing it or we're doing a podcast. How do you extract those those secrets or those inside jokes?
1: Yeah, it was something I've had to think quite a lot about because when I was drawing marketing cartoons, I was the audience. and Yeah. So- yeah, they were, the jokes were there because they were my pain points, you know. Right. And that's and that's still the case. Most of my marketing observations come from things I've I've worked on, or right. you know, a lot of people do send me their stories now, which is nice having that relationship with the audience. I hear from the audience; they tell me you'll never believe what happened. <laughs> um. So that's that was that was one thing. But when I started doing this for clients, I had to get much more systematic about sourcing material, finding the right kind of stimulus to create cartoons. And I go through a pretty regimented process of you know a discovery. Where I'll send out thought starter questions ahead of time to the client. And in some ways it's similar to any sort of creative brief where they have to think about the audience they're reaching and what are some of the insights and that type of thing. What about the brand that they want to communicate? But there's some nuances around cartoons, and and most of the nuances have to deal with uh, surfacing some of those pain points and particular particular stories around those pain points. And so I, tr- I send them these thought starter questions so they come prepared with examples of how, these pain points have been felt in aspects of you know of you know it, within their company or the audience that they're trying to reach their customers and um, and we and we just have a very you know casual but very fun um, conversation about what those pain points look like and usually I I get them going with a little bit of upfront sort of setup ask a couple teasing questions and once they get into it then it just comes out of the woodwork and everybody has stories oh my god this happened you know here's <laughs> something a customer told us or this happened here. And they kind of get going, and the next thing you know, you know, an hour goes by, and I've got a I got a ton of material to work with. So that's that's u- the usual process. Um, but I love I don't know maybe it's my business school training where you would have a business case on you know the concrete industry one day, and the next day you're learning about you know open source software, and so you yeah. have to kind of shift gears and find the commonalities among across business. But I love working in industries where I haven't had personal experience and learning through those stories, what aspects are universal, but I can then make very specific and inside joke-ish by some of this this research work. And so the other area that we're starting to experiment with content marketing are uh, internal-oriented campaigns. So big companies trying to drive culture change and getting their their own employees to think about issues. So we've worked with a company recently that that has 160,000 employees across the world in all these different languages. And even though it's a lot of employees and it covers the world, they have their own corporate culture, their own acronyms, their own ways of thinking about business. And so we followed this process to really mine for those stories and then develop these cartoons. They ended up translating into a dozen languages that reflect different right. inside jokes for this company. And I just started another, another one with a, a bank that's based in Singapore. I've never been to Singapore um, and they have offices in India and uh in a couple other countries and i'm trying to mine for material and so we had you know a cartoon idea we were riffing on and it kind of uh it kind of started to tease out some some cultural references that that i just wasn't aware of having not grown up in that culture but if you frame the questions right all these stories come up and suddenly yeah. i think ah that could be something that could be used or useful you know they all in, in this particular bank they 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 talked about when managers would work with their employees, they would sometimes use the expression that the employees felt scolded. And I thought scolded was such an interesting term because it kind of, it seems like, you know, like almost like in a school environment or right. with parents. So that's something that, for instance, that I suddenly thought, oh, wow, scolding, that seems like it's part of the culture. There's something I can play with there. Let me right. turn scolding into a cartoon idea somehow.
0: Interesting. You know you should go to Singapore you should somehow justify the research uh that I would it's, been, <laughs> it's such a great place and they have these long canals with restaurants along them and chili crab is the thing uh, huh. but but yeah it just it's interesting i i think you know when i when i heard the questionnaire i think sometimes it's like it's like the secondary question or the follow up like we get people yeah. thinking because you know you mentioned the business cases but sometimes you know the big places you were at and other companies you know, you ask a question and now we've got this high language, you know, sort of generic about our audience and, and their, their needs and, and right. all the things that we're going to give them. But then to your point, you have these, start having these dialogues about customer stories and that's where the fun comes out. That's where the real stories come out.
1: It is, but that is totally where the fun comes out. I love that. And I love, you know, occasionally we'll make campaigns interactive, you know, where people will send in their stories, like the Intuit example that I mentioned. Yeah. Where we did something with IBM a few years ago when they were launching Watson Analytics and how these analytics, you know, at Watson could help you solve these data challenges. So we asked people for their specific data challenges, and all these people sent in their stories for, you know, businesses I would never even think would have a reason to use, you know, you know, data analytic software. You know, right. a landscaping service was one of the ones that came in, and they had this really funny example, and so we turned that into a cartoon, and it really works kind of huh. understandable in a broad sense, but then also about a very specific story that happens, which, you know, going back to the authenticity theme you mentioned at this, you know, start, um, you know, that, that's a great way to, to show, to, you know, to play back the authenticity is to, to, to use actual examples and remix it in a way that people would recognize.
0: Right. I also think about the, you know, the different sales models. And one of the things that, you know, we do it, you know, my company, and it, it's, it's what they call a challenger sale. It's not the, the standard. let me, find out your needs and find the analysis, you know, tell me more about it. it it's actually flips the script and it's, a, it, it's kind of neat. It's kind of modeled after what I did accidentally, which is I, I am you, I've been there and this is what you need. And this is what I've you know, saw when I was in your shoes and this is what I right. did to fix it. Do you have any of these problems? I bet you have a couple. And they're like, yeah, we do. Wow. You really yeah. know, you really know us. Don't you? And it's like, Yeah, we do. We, you know, we for sure know it's like, like you knew me before I even opened my mouth. You know what we're, we're up to and what we're going on. And I, I see, and I see the, the cartoons as a reflection of that. It's a company saying, we know you, whether it's internal to, to an employee, we know you have, you've dealt with this language or the externally, we know you've had this challenge and, right. and we're here to, not only do we know you that well, we, we made this other thing to, to help you do that.
1: Yes, I think that's totally right. And, it's, and in a way, it's kind of how I built this business is because yeah. I have this cartoon for marketers and then my clients are all marketers who've been following that cartoon, you know, and for inevitably decades. the initial call <laughs> starts with, oh, I've been reading your stuff for a while. You totally get us. So let's, we, you skip past a lot, of this, a lot of the preamble and get right into the, the fun working relationship, which yeah. I think is it, nice because they, they know that you get them.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's almost like one of those cheesy romance novels. uh that Tom Fishburne, he gets me, man. <laughs> he saw into my soul as a marketer, and he knew what was going on. <laughs> That's awesome. And
1: they, they all, they, they. All, I often hear people nervously saying, "If I'm in a meeting or something, like, oh, careful, this is going to end up in a cartoon."
0: <laughs> right. right. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, it's that. It's the. It's the visuals. You know, and I. And I know you've talked a lot as well about the idea of visual storytelling and in in marketing if we forget the fact that we're telling stories that's actually what's happening here that's the best way instead of pushing something at someone we're saying look similar situation yeah, gone through the same kind of thing and this is what's happened you know and and we, we actually just had a podcast with uh, um, amazing guest Nancy behavioral. Marketing behavioral science and marketing You're talking about people love the social proof and and the the idea that someone else has gone through this Just like them, you know, and yeah. and so how you know, talk about visual storytelling? How, how do you how do you take sort of this concept of storytelling and and add the visuals to it? And it you know It, it probably goes beyond even just cartoons or that particular medium into just the idea of our, our visual senses
1: yeah, I think, I think cartoons are a useful way to think about visual storytelling because I think they're um, they're kind of the, the simplest version of, of, of visual storytelling. Like you,
2: sure.
1: um, there's something that cartoonists um, uh, think of as uh, text-image interdependence, where you have words, mm. you know, pictures, and you put the two together, and the to result is sort of greater than the sum of its parts. They're sort of like, you see a cartoon, visual, you read the caption your mind puts the two together and then that's where the that's where the humor happens. There's something right. unexpected that happens and mixing it. It's kind of the difference between an illustration and a cartoon, you know, is is that and particularly single panel cartoons, which is what I mostly focus on. Right. And so I think um, I think when you know in, in in creating a cartoon, the visual storytelling part is really an exercise in trying to find the simplest way to say something. You know, taking out all extraneous information getting to the very, very bare essentials. You know, people, you know, and, and, and most of the audiences for our campaigns read left to right. You know, I, I have worked in some parts of the Arab world where you kind of flip it, but it's uh, reading left to right and seeing like, as you scan a cartoon, looking at the visuals and the, and the, and the text that it all comes in the right order to sort of convey the, 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 the message. And my usual, my, typically my initial sketches are overly complex. And over time of, of iterations. I, I synthesize it down to something that says it in as few words as possible and as few visuals as possible and um, some of my favorite cartoons are ones that actually get to the point of simplicity where you can drop the caption all together and it's funny just with the with the illustration. So that's what I always think about is with, with in creating creating it is how do I how do I have as little information there as possible and there's often a bit of education with clients because sometimes they'll say oh I love the sketch can we have this and this and this and this and this and this and if you do all of that You complicate the whole cartoon and it ends up falling apart and so usually with that kind of conversation i'll say we can but i'd recommend rather than cram it all into one cartoon pace it out if you want to say this and this and this and this let's tell that over four separate cartoons that have each tell that little piece of the story and so that's often what i think about from a visual storytelling like you we as humans are hardwired to process information visually you know it's it's uh it's a it's it's a really useful way to think about content marketing is how you would Synthesize what you're trying to say from a white paper into a series of small visuals um, But then it's that I think that that exercise in taking out all extraneous information and getting to just the, the nugget of truth that you want to convey and um, I, I I try to also think about a little bit of a you know a pyramid approach where You know typically the cartoons that we're creating are part of a larger whole and mm. a company may have other types of content marketing the cartoons just happen to be the simplest most snackable version of that content and that's so true. we'll create a whole series of that that then each cartoon may may link up to a white paper or a bigger piece of creative or something that tells the longer story. But right. the visual storytelling component is how do you synthesize it down in just a sound bite that can be easily shared? And, you know, and, and getting a laugh creates that emotional connection that people like, oh, my God, that's so funny. And maybe they'll want to read the deeper story behind it.
0: Right. if the cartoon
1: is that pain point then they might read the white paper that's a longer more in depth you know solution to that pain point
0: you know it's interesting it's like it's a single panel and to your point you're you're matching up the illustration with the copy it's actually a lot harder to do it that way than it is to have a nine page paper or because you're you're super simplifying and and I was mentioning really, you know one of the things that we learned on, on a previous podcast was the idea of this um, uh, combining uh, text in here let me just pull up a note here it was it's fascinating it was cognitive fluency that's I had to look that one up um, yeah. but but the idea that if something's simple then we actually believe it it's easier to understand we learn it and it's actually we believe it more when it's simplified than if it's something complicated and crazy and so i, agree, I, think, yeah. I think you nail that when you talk about a single you know a single frame single line in a in a picture it's it's you've reduced it down to its core element and that way it's ultimately the most believable
1: right yes i think that's true i think i think I, you know, I think that that it's believable and just really easy to share. You can totally relate to that. Right. Um, I think that I can't remember where this story came from, but there's some quote about somebody saying, you know, I would have written you uh, you a shorter letter, (laughs) but I didn't have enough time. So I'm sending you a long (laughs) one.
0: Yeah, no, I just looked that quote up. People are saying it's probably Mark Twain. But yeah, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think that's true. I think, um, you know, I think, you know, that's, you know, with a single panel cartoon, you don't have the luxury of space. So that's yeah. an inherent limitation. Uh, but I think the best cartoons are the ones that keep refining it and keep refining it and keep refining it. And, um, and I, uh, you know, it's, it's, I find, you know, that's, that comes with practice and time too. I find my, my earlier cartoons had a lot more going on in them. And like, more recently I try to just, I try to, I, I've really made a conscious effort to try to, Synthesize it down to just something really really simple and my favorite cartoonists are ones who take it even further There's a French cartoonist named Jean-Jacques sampe who's in his 90s now and he, he draws New Yorker covers occasionally uh, But he's he's really well known in France, but he, a lot of his cartoons are just exquisitely funny and they need like You know many of them are really funny without needing a word at all and I and I find uh, you know a lot of inspiration from from real experts in the field of communicating things visually, like how they, how they get to that. And uh, I think that's something that it's a useful exercise. I think for anyone, even when you're working with words, how do you simplify it down to the simplest version of what you can convey?
0: Right. Right. You know, absolutely. I think that applies across all the me, simplifying and, and also restricting yourself, you know, because you've really restricted yourself with, with your choice of the single frame, uh, but other folks, writers, mar- you know, marketing copywriters, can you say it in less? You know, okay, yeah. start saying, you know, write your three pages if you need to, uh, but can you say it with less? And I was actually at a, a conference in Toronto um, the last two days, and there was some training around particular uh, type of thing, and uh, it almost it doesn't even matter what it was about. It just matters that there were eight sessions. So Tuesday there's a morning session after late, you know, late morning, lunch, session, break, session, break. Now they had great treats in between each one, which was awesome. But, um, but there was eight sessions. And so some of those sessions, a lot of us were there. What? This is, this was not really that effective. Like this particular session was, this one was, but this one wasn't. And it's a tough crowd because the room was full of CEOs. <laughs> um, yeah. They were like cats. Right. So, um, but, but, you know, my thought I had in my head was, start with one session. You only have a half-morning session. If you only had that, what would you put in that session to get us all the information we need? Okay, now you have two, what would you add, you know? Uh, But the the fact that they started out with so many sessions, maybe they didn't develop it that way, but it sure felt like that because actually on, I think it was the fourth session, there was one on yesterday, there was a slide that basically summarized everything that we needed to do, in this particular is like a volunteer position. It, it summarized everything and they're like whoa well that's what we've been looking for <laughs> yeah, yeah. where did that come from <laughs> i would put that on that first session right <laughs> so it was a great example for me to okay this is what i do with eight sessions but what would you do with one or two yeah. with one page okay one page white paper what are you going to say what you only get one stat you're going to highlight in a little call out on the right what's that one stat okay and then maybe the second page but we really kind of having forcing ourselves, Mark Twain style, single panel. What can you convey in that in that one part?
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a really useful exercise, and uh, and I think there's because there's so much clutter, you yeah. know, this content marketing overload. It's incre- increasingly important to find that because there's just there's been such an emphasis on quantity, and I think you know this next stage is really going to be about quality and refinement.
0: For sure. Now, what I would love to ask you now about is creativity. And I know you present on this and and you're just, I mean, based on what I've seen, you know, very visually creative, but also the conversation we talked about, how, you know, how do you, I don't want to say oversimplify it, you know, asking Elon Musk, how do you make a rocket, but how do you increase your creativity? You know, how do you, you know, get those juices flowing a more regular basis and, yeah, what's your approach to all that? Because I'm sure after a while, you know, I'm sure there's maybe one particular day where you're like, I don't feel like doing any, you know, I don't yeah. know, maybe not if it's a passion, but sometimes you're just like, I, I don't want to do, you know, it's your job now. You, right. How do you stay fresh? How do you stay current? That kind of thing.
1: Yeah. It's, um, it's something that I didn't have to think about when I was just creating a cartoon a week about marketing. <laughs> yeah. I was right. like, you know, it's not, it was not that hard to create a cartoon a week. You're just surrounded by stimulus and you think there's make a cartoon." But now that I'm, you know, typically more, more like 20 cartoons a week, let's say, for different campaigns and clients, I've had to be much more systemic about uh, mm-hmm. or systematic about my approach to creativity. And I've studied the processes of a lot of artists of different stripes. Really? And I've kind of like, experimented with what works well for me. And I find that uh, the most important thing is to dedicate, um, uh, set aside and dedicate space and time purely for the creative process where I'm not trying to multitask, where I don't have conference calls. Uh, it helps for me to have that as the same time every single day, uh, or at least the first thing that I do every single day. I'm most creative early in the morning, and I, f- I find most artists and writers I've known are the same way. So I dedicate uh, kind of the first two hours of every day for pure creative time. Mm-hmm. And it's like exercise. Like it, it's, it's – uh, it's something that the more that i hold to that the more i exercise it the better and more productive those creative times are and so i, I dedicate two hours i have a lot of rituals around those two hours you know I, I turn off all devices and distractions um i listen to the same album over and over again um for some reason it's going it to kind of like start to become part of my process yeah. and uh, and that's helpful now because it's like pavlov's dogs when i hear that album on a on a plane I can work on a plane now you know but but it's also it gets me into that creative space where I know for those two hours my job is to is to work on creative ideas and then once I'm in that space then I try to I, I, I think about the process in a couple of different ways there's there's there, there's stages there's the upfront stage where I don't really know what what the cartoon is going to be about and I just need to just play on ideas. And so uh, before all this, by the way, I have a bunch of stimulus. I've already had calls with clients. And I have stimulus to work on. But then when I'm sitting down with that stimulus, the first stage is really not putting any structure around it, except for the fact that I'm sitting in a chair and have to play with this material. And I play with it you know, for a period of time. I usually work in 45-minute increments, sure. play with the material. And at the end of that, I, probably, I mostly just have a bunch of goofy sketches on index cards. Most yeah. of them don't make it. Then I, sh- I put it away. And then I come back the next day and I look at those goofy sketches on the index cards. And after a day, my subconscious mind, I think, starts to play with a little bit. And suddenly some of those goofy sketches, I start to think maybe there's something here. I don't even really know what it is yet. And I kind of think of, of my own little Wikipedia stub for an idea. And I yeah. kind of put them in a special little category called stubs. Of things. They could be cartoons someday, but I don't really know if they're actually, they're actually something there or not. And then I put it all away again. And then the third day, I come back and look at it, and at that point, some things are starting to rise to the top as actual cartoons. Uh, they're not totally refined yet, they're really sketchy, but there's something a little bit f- further there. And, uh, and I keep playing with those. I also keep going back to the goofy sketches from the first day, and I add more goofy sketches. And you know, day after day after day, I suddenly have a packet of things that where ideas are bubbling to the top that it could actually be cartoons. Other things have you know some potential there. I intuitively feel like there's some potential, but I don't quite know what yet. And I just kind of refine on it. And at the end of a week of doing that, I have a good stack of solid ideas that I can then share with the client. And uh, the cartoonists that I partner with are also working on a similar system. So typically, you know, I mentioned the writer's room approach. We're all doing our version of this. And then there's a thing that comes, happens where we bring all the ideas together and we see which ones are totally rising the top and we refine them a little bit more and then we present those to the client. And so I find that over time, that process works for me to sort of, um, where I try to, you know, you mentioned the idea of writer, of writer's block or feeling days that you're not as creative and that definitely happens. But, um, what I find that the wrong approach to that is to think, I'm not feeling it today. I'm going to go do something else. The approach that I've started to do is to, is to sit in that chair, even if I don't feel like it and just lower the bar of what I am expected to do. Day one is just about silly little sketches on the index cards. If I start to worry, oh my God. I don't have anything that could be a great cartoon by day five. If I'm worried about that on day one, I won't have the silly little sketches on <laughs> You'll
0: never first. get there, right.
1: Yeah, so I don't know, that might be more detailed than you want it, but I find no, that that's, that's, my, awesome. that's my process like that is dedicating the time to be creative and then being systemic about what my job is on any one day and 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 try to not put... But the, the problem I find is that if I have there's sort of a pendulum between my creative brain and my critical brain, And if I have too much of my critical brain on day one, I won't come up with anything. So I need to have I need to have the space and the time to be creative without the critical brain interrupting. But then by day five, I need a critical brain that will tell me, hey, you got to simplify this further or this isn't understandable. Or how about we flip this around this way and maybe a better a better result. And so that's that's the ultimate that's the ultimate uh, kind of balance I have to go through. And a lot of artists I've talked to have a similar process in their own way. Of right. separating time when they can work on it, and ultimately, I there so, you know, ultimately it is about sitting in the chair. Like I, I can't wait for eureka moments in the shower or on a run. Um, and it has to, you know, there's a, a cartoonist named Hillary Price who draw who draws the cartoon rhymes with orange. And the, every, whenever she's asked where her ideas come from, she says, she says her ideas come from an ancient yoga position called ass in the chair, and that's why... <laughs> I think there's something to that, making sure you're just sitting in the chair and being receptive to the ideas and putting in the work, being being present and working on ideas until they're there.
0: You know, I'm I'm going to Tim Ferriss on you and, and uh, ask you some follow-up questions here because there's a couple really interesting, you know, and I also want to, I'd love to hear how you, you know, what's some of the different influences that helped you build this? But this is really interesting. So same album over and over again. Do you eventually switch it up? Uh, no, I, ha- I
1: haven't in the last you know ten years or so. It's always been a, this nineteen fifty nine Miles out, Davis album called Kind of Blue. For some reason, that album I just like keyed into, and it's all instrumental, so there's nothing to get distracted by. And the moment I first hit the first part of the song, it, it I I barely even listened to the song. I couldn't even tell you what songs are in what order because it really is pure subconscious. I just right. listened to it, and something about those songs kind of takes me to a place where I'm I'm open to uh non-linear thinking and not trying to overthink ideas i just sort of let it let it go and uh you know it it could be other albums for other people but for some reason i never get tired of it after all maybe not
0: maybe that's just the album we should all go get that
1: it could be yeah i
0: that up on spotify (laughs) right after this (laughs) i know
1: there's one other cartoonist who years later he drew a cartoon about that album and i thought oh my god there's maybe something in the ether there
0: right if you can ever fully encapsulate it wow yeah okay so same one for 10 over 10 years then really at this point you said
1: a loop it's exactly almost exactly 45 minutes long which is a good creative stretch for me so when the album sort of ends uh it's a good time for me to take a break and then i'll literally sit down and put the album on again and it uh, i never get tired of it but it 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 uh I don't know. It's, it, it, I think I, I find that rituals are helpful to get me into that space where I suspend my creative mind and get into a place where I know it's just purely about sitting in the chair, trying to riff on creative ideas.
0: Interesting. Yeah. like, even before this podcast, I, I put on a particular CD, I jumped on a trampoline and uh, yeah. looked out the window at all the passerbys. I'm like, who is that <laughs> guy? Like, don't worry. It's Casey. But, but no, I, I, well, see, you know, then that's in the moment, but I, I, there is some value to the kind of thing where you can just, tune out you know and and to your point not having words on those songs i mean sometimes i'll listen to spanish music because i have no idea what they're saying and i, and I think yeah. i've found that if you know what they're saying you can get tired of it a lot faster because yeah. it's, and you also you can focus on it maybe you shouldn't be because you just keep hearing the same words but it's when it's instrumental. Probably even a little bit better than the Spanish because eventually you you'll learn the Spanish, <laughs> uh, not very well, but better. Uh, and so eventually you get tired of those words potentially, but instrumental, um, you can you know, just let it flow. That makes a lot of sense. So like mood music, but it's neat that it's the same the same one. Uh, another, yeah. you know, and it, you, you mentioned it's almost like you know working out or going to the gym, being consistent with it. And it's kind of a cliche that creativity is a muscle, but something about cliches I've lately heard, you know, whenever you hear a cliche, it's usually true. <laughs> some, some I think that's absolutely true. true for that. You know?
1: Yeah. If I, 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 you know, if I, the more I exercise that muscle, the more, you know, yeah. the quicker it is for me to get to ideas in the chair. If I haven't done it for a while, if I've been on vacation or whatever, it, I'm rusty when I first get into it and I get distracted, yeah. I get impatient and I start to notice, you know, what time it is before that 45 minutes is up. But I'm right. re- when I'm really like used to exercising it every day, d- generally I look down and the album's over. and I'm like, wow, that's, I can't believe that's been 45 minutes already.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's how you know you're in the zone, right? Flow state, that kind of thing. That's really cool. Um yeah. And then how? And
1: then do you like, there's always time for conference calls later in the day. Sure. Like I find, like I've, i shifting from an environment where I was working in a big office and not really in control of my schedule per se, because my calendar would fill up and meeting requests all day long, running from one thing to another. Now that I'm more in control of my schedule, I'm much more productive because I can, you know, I, I you know, I used to work in open offices where there was no flow state. Like if I had to work yeah. on something, I had to escape and go to a coffee shop and try to find a version of that. And I think. I think ultimately, if I were back in a big office again, I would have to do that. I'd have to find dedicated time for deep thinking for certain types of work that the, uh, the always on, let's have an open office, let's have a quick conversation here and there, uh, uh, world that, mo- that many of us work in isn't conducive to deep thinking. And I think the business world needs more deep thinking time yeah. and, uh, and carving out space for that.
0: You know, I've, I've learned that the most successful people are always very intentional about their time. You know, in, in whenever you can do that you can really leverage your own time you know that's where growth comes from for sure uh there, there's a system that that i've recently started subscribing to where you pick days uh, strategic coaches what it's called and you pick days um a free day like this is a day where i'm not checking email i'm only spending family or doing some hobby that i love it's my free day but that creates a sense of urgency so the day prior or the day after you want to get that work done so you have the time on the free day but then you have focus days where you just do the top things you need to be doing um it sounds like this would be that that almost that creative time that that you have um on daily basis but sometimes you might even bucket in in a whole day and then that frees up the last part which is a buffer day where you're you're actually planning ahead for those those free and focus days so yeah it's it's those kind of concepts that are just really fascinating but i see that working i see it being much more effective than Five minutes here, five minutes there. You're, you can't possibly get, you know, give your your brain a chance. That's why people come up with ideas in the shower because they're not giving themselves a chance to do it, you know, uh, you know, outside of that environment. Yeah.
1: yeah, I totally agree. And I also feel like I, I find um, it's helpful for me to space it out. Like if somebody says you need a cartoon by tomorrow, um, I, I, I do that occasionally, but I'd much prefer to have that process play out with sure. the iterations because that, that lets the subconscious come in. It's ultimately. Always a better cartoon if I can let my subconscious mind do some of the work,
0: yeah, and yeah. not just. I can these. picture you just having some sort of like French artist freak out like in a day. Oh no, not me! You know, like don't you I'm know how to work under
1: these conditions?
0: I'm talking to I I have a process. Yeah, for sure. One other question: How do you organize your stubs?
1: Oh yeah, so I have I work on five by eight index cards. Interesting. Which lets me. I used to work in sketchbooks, and I found that I was found it restrictive to work in the sequence of the sketchbook.
2: Yeah, it's easier
1: for me to have a big stacks of paper that I can shuffle around. And so I will um, uh, typically have a, just an envelope for each project I work on, and I try to, you know, they they they, they tie up. It's one of those little tied up envelopes, and I'll typically have all the stubs for that project in there, and I organize them by group. There may be themes, so particular particular client we may have 10 different themes we're riffing on and there are stubs within each of those themes and uh and i just kind of like i'll, I'll shuffle it through it's really sketchy and rough and mo- mo- if anybody else you know stumbled across that's it, mostly illegible <laughs> to anybody but me but when i look at the images i'm like oh that's what i was going for in that sketch and uh i shuffle it around refine it if it, if i have ripped on it and iterate it to a point where it's the next as an evolution i just throw away the old one I try not to be precious about anything at that stage, right. uh, which is another part the moment I start to get too precious about it. The moment I'm really into refine the mode and uh, I need, I need to, that That's when my critical mind comes too much in. So I, I need to be, I need to be deliberately uh, um, kind of somewhat you know, organized, but allow myself to, you know, like I said, create the silly little drawings where I don't have any expectations on anyone.
0: Right. And the cards allows you to just freely shuffle them and, and and move things around
1: yeah and draw over them and you know i i'll start with pencil then i'll add ink for things that might be a little better and then sharpie and then, you know it starts to starts to hold form i'll play with different colors or i'll initial them if they're if they look like they're further along but it's just my own very quick shorthand to catalog the ideas as i have them and what's the striking a chord with me sometimes i look at it sometimes i'll put away a whole stack of stubs Come back, you know, particularly for the Marquetteunis campaign or some of the campaigns that are ongoing. I'll I'll find stuff I didn't see a lot of value in and didn't take forward. I'll stick it in a in a drawer and come back to it three months later. And there's something on three months later. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't see this. There's this this could be turned into a really great idea. So mm-hmm. I find that I have to have respect for the subconscious mind uh you know and and what ha- what can happen when i'm not consciously thinking about ideas
0: you know it sounds like respect for it but also you're you're telling it what to do too by you know doing that position the yoga position butt in the seat hey yeah. the time is dedicated to this activity but then to your point lowering the bar and i, and I think i don't know if it was tim ferris someone saying i want to write two crappy pages a day And that's how yeah. i write a book you know it it, it doesn't magically appear it's not eight Eighty brilliant ones today, and four. But it's no matter what, I'm going to be consistently, you know, exercising that that creative muscle. And even if I don't want to, I'm I'm just going to keep at it. But I'm just going to lower my critical, you know, in my head type of motor and cop and, and reduce myself so I can just sort of keep at it and not be so critical.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And Lamott has a great book called Bird by Bird that's on this on this topic as well. Really. Uh, it's about her being, a, being, you know, as a child, having to write a big book report about birds and her dad telling her, just take it bird by bird. Oh, yeah. Writes a lot in that book about the crappy first draft, you know, that you you should expect for it to be a crappy first draft. If you want to be a brilliant first draft, you're not going to get past the first couple of sentences because you're going to constantly question, it. is it perfect enough? But what's more important right. is getting that crappy first draft out there. So you I, I you- often, my first day, I'm like, my only job is to fill up this envelope full of little index cards. You know, and mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't matter if any of them are any good at all. But it just, just scribble it down. The goofier, the better. And that by day, you know, a couple of days into that cycle, I see something in there inevitably. And I need to have, you know, I think r- true writer's block would come for me the moment I start uh, stop having faith that on day three, four, and five there there uh, you know valuable ideas there. But mm-hmm. at the moment, I have enough track record to f- have I have faith in the process. You know, it's yeah. not about me. It's about the you know trusting the process that the, if I sit in the, the chair long enough inevitably the ideas will be there.
0: Right, right. I I mean I, I love writing, but I've struggled with the fact that I like things being perfect, and yeah. and they don't. It's your, this conversation they're not necessarily perfect the first time, and sometimes if they are, that's a that's great. But but the system is, is what you need to how you to approach it, or or even if not system, that, but have that some sort of way of of doing it, so you're not trying to force it to happen right away, um, because what happens? Then you stop writing. <laughs> like it's like the hey, blog. Yeah. Well, you're gonna, hey, I, I wrote a couple of great blog posts, but now I got to write a great blog post. Oh man, it's the pressure of being brilliant every time, and and you know not wanting to fail at it. But I, I, if you have a if you have a way of continuing to, and I love your system because now you're saying, hey, we'll get there. No worries. Just just put stuff down. You know, it'll come. Yeah do you do you take time um, and I know obviously you know art and, and drawing is a passion, and now that it's a business, do you, do you have other things you do to distract yourself or like charge your, charge your batteries if you will?
1: I do, yeah, and I, I need that I find now that yeah. I, now that I'm doing it as my business, like, and I love it, I do love it, um, uh, but I also need an outlet outside of that without percent client briefs and, you know, feedback loops and that kind of stuff. <laughs> my, my weekly marketing cartoon fulfills some of that, you know, because right. I I create cartoons about what I want to do. You know, I don't create, right. you know, I don't accept outside feedback on that. It's sort of a separate thing. But I do, I do find I need to push myself creatively or I get stuck in a rut, you know, and so I'm always looking for ways to, to do other things. You know, I've been doing some um, scenic design painting for theater shows lately, which has been fun, you know. So instead of working on tiny sheets of paper, I paint on huge, massive canvases that have to be you know something people could could recognize from right (laughs) 40 60 feet away and that's a totally different a different uh challenge for sure but it's still in the creative space and so that's an example of something that i do and i'm always looking for things like that that i can kind of push things out there i'm trying to you know playing around with more traditional painting occasionally um you know those those types of things and i feel like i I need, uh, I need, and actually it's, it's such a common issue I've, I've heard, I found in talking to people who've found a way to turn their artistic hobby into a career. Yeah. They have to other things outside of that career just to feed them, you know, creatively.
0: Absolutely. You just mix things up, try things out. And, and I, I heard, especially certain people and maybe even a lot of us uh, or most of us, we, we, we're all about pursuit, you know, so it's almost like that pursuit is is what drives us so if we actually attain it now what do we do we're kind of you know whether it's that you got that award you got that gold medal or you created that company now what next you know or you've nailed that it's almost like there's a lot of us who just who really prefer that that terrible mix between um uh trying to get competent and also trying to learn and you're not yet a master at it. You know, the mastery things, Hey, I'm, I'm this, um, there was a story about a a chef in France who had Michelin stars. His restaurant was only meat. And, and one day he came in and said only vegetables and everyone was like, crazy. You know, this is, you're, this is ridiculous. You're the meat guy. You're third chef in France. But he's like, you know what? If, if I'm not in it, then we've already lost. Right. So, now I'm, yeah. it was all vegetables and they lost two stars, but eventually came back. And then now he's the vegetable guy. Right. But it kept him engaged and inspired and, and that type of thing.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's important. It really is important. I, I don't want to, you know, I didn't uh, make this decision for this career choice to, to, have something that doesn't feed me you know creatively. And so it needs to, that passion part, when you, when you do your own business, you ha- that's the most important thing I think is to make sure you continue to have that.
0: Right. Right. And it doesn't, it's not guaranteed to stay. So you have to actively work on reengaging yourself and reinventing things for sure. Um, and you know, speaking of that, you've collected a lot of the marketing tunists, um, into a book, right?
1: Yes. Yes. That, I just published a couple of months it's ago.
0: Out? It's a, that's out now.
1: Yes. It's out now. Okay. Which has okay. been really fun. Yeah. I got to oh, Yeah.
0: Tell it. me about it. Hey, there it is. Oh, I love it. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, your ad ignored here. Cartoons from 15 years of marketing, business, and doodling and meetings was sort of (laughs) the title. But it's sort of my favorite cartoons from the last 15 years of this journey. Yeah. About my marketing career, but really about marketing. And it's, in a way, it's um, that last 15 years has been an interesting uh, period of time in the history of marketing because a lot of things have come online. That's true. It's always, marketing is always changing. But I think the last 15 years has been a really interesting one to watch. And um, it was fun for me going back through and collecting the cartoons for this book to look at some of that journey because I was kind of drawing in real time as, you know, things like Facebook came along, like, you know, how yeah. a brands back to that. And uh, so that's been, that's been fun. And it, and it continues, obviously, you know, on the Facebook theme in particular, there's, it, it, it's, it never gets, never gets old. Uh, but yeah, the cartoon was, the, the book was a fun way to kind of put the, all yeah. the together in one place.
0: I see it like a, in anthology i don't know if that's even the right word but like a a record of how marketing has happened and to your point i i agree the last 15 years i mean wow i mean to go from the 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 mad men type thing from the 80s and 90s to now we've all got email addresses and Ah. and websites and web tracking and now automation and eventually ai and all those things so yeah just kind of taking a but seeing it come up in conversation and and obviously, people do it wrong at the very beginning because they heard about it and they want to give it a shot, and and uh, the hilarity that ensues after that.
1: Exactly, and I try like I've been a marketer on that journey myself, so I've it, right. everything I try to draw cartoons about are challenges I've experienced right. to face. and faced, uh, and and so it's a personal book in, in that sense because all of these <laughs> things I'm oh my gosh I'm rem- remembering sitting in that meeting and trying to execute that strategy. But the fun part about this whole process has been to see that it's been a Uh, educational journey for all of us as marketers. We've all been learning together and uh, and finding, you know, a way to laugh at ourselves along the way.
0: It's it's been, has been fun. Totally. You got to laugh at yourself. If you can't do that, you need a vacation. (laughs) Well, this has been awesome, man. I don't know if you've seen the clock. We just, we just chewed through lots of time and this has been awesome.
1: Thank you so much for having me in this discussion. It's been really fun to talk with you about it.
0: Absolutely. I I mean, tell me, what are some of the links where people can find you? I know it's Twitter. uh, You know, let's do the name of the book. We'll link to it in the show notes. But what are some of the ways people can connect uh, or even work with your company if they want to, you know, uh, take their company from being boring and uh, actually (laughs) create a brand that has some, you know, humanity in it?
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, it's all it, 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 the biggest help probably is marketunist. dot com. That's where uh-huh. I have I, I put put a cartoon every week, along with a little bit of a thought leadership article of sorts of how how I think of the cartoon and how it plays out in the world of marketing. Uh, but also some of the campaigns that we've worked on with different companies, some of my keynote speaking. That's all there. And then it, all the all the social channels. I push the cartoons out there every week as well. So, Absolutely. So. I, know,
0: I know you also have an email list that. That I've been subscribed to for for uh, a little bit actually, where I it's almost like a cartoon a week. You know, it's a great way to yeah. just yeah actual mail you want to receive <laughs> in your inbox. Yeah,
1: thank you. It, it's fun. I, and my mailing list, it's funny as as low tech as email marketing sometimes feels in the world yeah. of all these other options. It, it's where my cartoon started, and ultimately, it's it's one of the the richer ways that I communicate with my audience every week. It's funny. It seems kind of old school, but it's been, it's been a great way to kind of build the audience over time.
0: Absolutely. And who knows what it is is in the future, you know, brain transmissions or something. Exactly. Uh, This has been great, Tom. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's really fun.
0: Absolutely. And everyone, if you enjoyed this, you know, share it with someone, definitely go sign up for that, either that email or subscribe. So you can get a little bit of humor back in your marketing career. And uh, this has been the hardcore marketing show. We'll see you next time.